Today's scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. All right, folks, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we now ask that you would speak to us, for your words are not just simply audible puffs of air. No, they are the very life itself. For it is through your word that you brought creation, reality into existence. It is through the word that we now have the recreation of salvation and the hope of our very lives. We now, so Lord, we come to you hungry for the word to feed our weary and tired souls so that it could have rippling effects to our physical actions, to our intellectual minds, to our psychological emotions so that we could be renewed holistically and therefore be a beacon of light to those around us like a beautiful, righteous virus that spreads forth and brings nothing but hope and life to those in contact with it. God, we pray that you would now speak to us, encourage us, equip us so that we could be the people you have commissioned us to be, people who are a blessing, not a curse, a people who represent the living Christ, the King of all the earth. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So, um, apparently, if uh, you're one of those people who likes to Google yourselves, you know who I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Don't, what is that? But apparently, if you're one of those people, they have a name for people like you, okay? You know what that is? You know what they call people who chronically, consistently Google themselves, they Google their own name? Ego surfers. Any ego surfers in here? Huh? Raise your hands. Come on. Come on. Dude, I should have worn my Hawaiian t-shirt today because I'm a proud ego surfer. I proudly confess, I Google my name all the time for two reasons. Reason number one, I want to know who my Google twins are. You guys know who your Google twins are? Those are the people who have the exact same name. So I guess technically if it's more than one person, it'd be more than a twin. It'd be like quadruplets or quintuplets, however many people have your name. And apparently I have a bunch of cool Google twins. One of my Google twin is a senior partner at a very prestigious law firm here in Manhattan. Another Google twin of mine <clears throat> is a professor at Manhattan Community College who has a 4.8 rating on ratemyprofessors.com. Right? I was going to say, man, if I was that guy, I would have 5.0 rating, not 4.8. But anyway, 
you know, not all of us can be perfect like my Google twins. But another reason why I like Googling my name, and this is a little bit more serious, is I want to know the perceptions, if there are any, out there with regard to me personally. You know, I want to know if there's anyone out there who are hating on John Bay. And as I do, it turns out that the name John Bay has no haters at all, at least not that Google can find, right? My name does not have any negative associations attached to it. But if you Googled my other name, well, let's just say it's not a very flattering response that I get back in that search engine. You're thinking to yourself, oh, PJ, you have another name? Are you talking about your Korean name? What, what name are you talking about? Well, actually, it's the same name that you have as well if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And that is the name Christian. Do you guys know what Google spits back at you when you write in the name <clears throat> Christian? Let me list off some of the things that Google gives as a result. Deceived. Stupid. And of course, this is my personal favorite. Polytheist Trinitarian Pagan. <laughs> what? So it's pretty clear that from the perspective of the outside world, we have a lot of haters out there. The world does not seem to like those of us who bear the name of Christ, right? And the question that I want to ask is, instead of asking Google, what would, if you ask God, would you say is his perspective when it comes to the name Christian? If you ask God, God, what do you think of when it comes to the name Christian? Christian? What do you think he would say? Well, that's the question that I want to answer as we take a look at this very well-known passage here in Luke chapter 10, traditionally called the Good Samaritan. And as we take a look, we're going to see that Jesus is going to answer that question for us by simply saying this. When it comes to the name Christian, Jesus says he thinks of two words, good neighbor. According to Jesus, when he thinks of the word Christian, he thinks of someone who is a good neighbor. And so in today's message, we're going to talk about what exactly does that mean to be a good neighbor? Because obviously it doesn't mean what Allstate says it is, right? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from Luke chapter 10. Number one, we're going to talk about the significance of neighbors. Number two, we're going to talk about the neglecting of our neighbors. And finally, we're going to end it with the unexpected neighbor. The significance of neighbors, the neglecting of our neighbors, and finally, the unexpected neighbor. Let's jump right in. First, the significance of neighbors. Our passage begins with a Jewish lawyer who was considered a spiritual leader during time of Jesus coming up to him, asking him this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when most Christians read this question that this lawyer is asking of Jesus, they interpret that to mean this guy asking Jesus, what must I do to make sure that when I die, I go to heaven, right? Most Christians, most churches, when they hear sermons like this, that's how they interpret that question this lawyer is asking of Christ. But here's the thing. He is actually asking something much more than that, okay? Take a closer look at his question. Notice the word that comes right after eternal life. What is it? Inherit, right? It's the word inherent, Now, let me ask, how do people typically inherit things? How do you inherit something? Well, in general, the only way, most ways in which people inherit things is by being related to the person who is giving that person an inheritance, right? In order to receive an inheritance, you have to be an heir. In order to have, in order to... If you are an heir, you get an inheritance, right? You inherit your mother's eyes. You inherit your father's baldness. You inherit the family business, so to speak, right? 
Now, if the only way that you can get this eternal life, according to this lawyer, is by inheriting it from God, and Jesus seems to validate this idea, then that means <clears throat> that in order to possess eternal life, you have to be an heir of God. You have to be a child of God. So putting all this together, what this lawyer is really asking of Jesus is simply this. Jesus, what must I do to show that I am a genuine child of God? Or, if we could put it in the context of our message, Jesus... What do you think of when you come across the name Christian? Someone who follows God, right? And in response, Jesus asks him what he thinks the answer to that question is. To where he says what he does, starting in verse 27, we read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And to that, Jesus says, good, right. Now go and do Likewise. Now, we got to stop for just a moment and just process what we've just considered right now, okay? Because according to Jesus, the first thing that he thinks of when he comes across the name Christian is not someone who goes to church every single Sunday morning, is not someone who's praying in tongues every single morning, okay? Not someone who reads massive tombs of theology textbooks every single night. No, the first thing, according to Christ, that he thinks of when he comes across the title Christian, the identifying name of Christian, is someone who loves their neighbor as themselves. In other words, someone who is a good neighbor. That, according to Jesus, is how you authenticate whether or not someone is a genuine heir of God, a true child of God. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, this may sound somewhat vague, somewhat nebulous. What do you mean, pastor, when Jesus says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? That sounds sounds so awkward. It sounds so weird. And no doubt, part of the weirdness is because when you and I think of the word neighbor, we think of that person who lives across the hall from our apartment or in the house right next door to ours. And usually... We don't interact with those people. And if you're one of the rare few Americans that do, it's really at a superficial level, right? But one of the things that you have to understand is that in the Bible, the concept of neighbor was much more broader, much more deeper and profound than in our culture today. A neighbor, according to the Bible, was someone whom you had a certain social obligation Towards. You see, in the culture that the Bible comes out of, people would provide food, would provide shelter, even security for someone whom they would call their neighbor. Why? Because in the ancient Jewish world, a neighbor wasn't simply the familiar stranger who lived in geographical proximity to you. No, a neighbor was any human being, any human being who was in your influence, in your life, that you were to treat, not simply as a friend, but as family, as a brother, as a sister, as a mother, as a father, there was this sense and attitude of having obligation and responsibility to the well-being of any human being within your sphere of influence. Now, if this way of thinking sounds unusual, different, that's not surprising. In fact, the Bible anticipates that. The Bible recognizes that the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself is unnatural, it's unattractive, maybe it's even repulsive. Why? Because the Bible also understands that the natural proclivity of the human heart is wanting to avoid, isolate, and not interact with people in our lives outside of our immediate circle of friends, outside of our immediate family networks, right? In fact, the Bible says that this anti-neighborness in our heart is so ingrained in us that even people who would consider themselves devout followers of God, 
who are very active in the religious practices of the worshiping community, even people like that can struggle in neglecting this very idea of being a good neighbor, of loving your neighbor as yourself. And the big question that we need to ask is, how is this possible? How is it possible that people who are genuine and sincere in their devotion to God be neglectful of what Jesus identifies as the central characteristic of what he thinks of when he thinks of someone who follows him? Well, to answer that question, we go to my next point, the neglecting of our neighbor. Starting in verse 25, it says this, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, on the surface, this seems like a very innocent, genuine follow-up question to what Jesus has been saying so far. But if you look more carefully, you'll realize that this man, this lawyer, he had an agenda And we see it by the way the text tells us of what his underlying attitude was, which was what? He wanted to justify himself. Justify himself. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that this lawyer genuinely believed that he was already a devout follower of God, a true heir of the living God, and he wanted to use this public discourse that he was having with Jesus to where Jesus would publicly validate him in front of all of his spiritual peers, as well as all of his spiritual superiors who were watching this interaction with Jesus. In other words, he was using Jesus to promote himself in the eyes of the religious community. That was his agenda. But here's the thing, Jesus was getting ready to pop his bubble because he was going to frustrate his agenda by revealing to people like him that instead of being true children of God, he was far from it. He was not a true child of God simply because of the fact that he was not a good neighbor. And the way that he does this, genius, is by telling a very disarming story, a parable which we begin to look at starting in verse 30. So let's read it. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Pause right there. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that this is a very believable story. Why? Because the road that Jesus is describing here in this parable is actually a real road that existed during Jesus' day. The road leading from Jerusalem to Jericho was a real road, and like as Jesus describes, it was a very violent place. It was a place where you did not want to go, but yet had to go because it was the only way to get to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this road was so dangerous that it was given the nickname, The Bloody Path. And just by the way that Jesus tells the story, it was living up to his name because here he tells us of a character on his way to Jerusalem, presumably to worship God, which explains why he had so much money because he needed to purchase animals to sacrifice. And fellow Jews, aware of the fact that their fellow Jews would be doing this, jump him, beat him down, strip him, and ultimately leave him for dead. Now, it's at this point in the story that we need to pay attention to the air of the characters that come into the story, because then Jesus introduces to us a priest and a Levite, and he highlights these two characters to tell us why guys like this Jewish lawyer, why they are not genuine Christians. Look at back at what it does, or what the story does. In verse 31, first you have a Levite coming into the scene. He sees the guy dying on the road, a fellow Jew of his, and what does he do? Does he go and immediately help him? Does he go out of his way to alleviate his 
burdens and his pain and his sufferings? No. He crosses the street and he keeps going. Verse 32, you have a priest. Does the exact same thing. He sees this guy literally dying right in front of him. And what does he do? He crosses the street and he keeps going. Now, the first thing that I want to point out about these two characters is that the priest and this Levite would have been seen by their contemporaries as genuine children of God. I mean, if there were anyone who could people say without a shadow of a doubt, oh yes, these are true believers of God, true followers of God, true heirs of God, it would be these kinds of characters. Kind of like, again, the Jewish lawyer. Why? Well, just in case you didn't know, To be a priest, to be a Levite was a very high honor in the days of ancient Israel, right? Because those are the only two types of people who could serve in the temple in Jerusalem. The Levites were commissioned by God to handle the furnishings inside the worshiping temple. And it was the priest who were given the exclusive responsibility of offering sacrifices on behalf of God's people as part of their worship to God. Yes, indeed, these two characters would have been seen by everyone as genuine, devout followers slash children of God. And yet, here they are seeing a fellow ethnic brother, a Jew, right, on the verge of death. And instead of assisting this man, they walk off. How do you explain that behavior? Here's why. Let me explain. In order for a priest and a Levite to do their duties, the Bible says that they have to maintain what is known as ceremonial holiness. They have to be ceremonial clean. And one of the ways that a Levite or a priest or a Jew, for that matter, could be uh, ceremonially unclean is if they were ever around a dead body. Look at what it says in Numbers chapter 19, starting in verse 11. It says, whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. No doubt, these two guys were probably thinking of Numbers 19 as they were processing, should I help this guy or not? You see, they were making a judgment call. See, if they end up helping this guy, right, who's on the verge of death, And he ends up dying on them. You know what that means? They can't go to the temple. They can't participate. They cannot do their ministry, right? Which is mainly what? Facilitating the worship of God with God's people. They cannot serve God's people at the temple. And no doubt they were probably thinking, if I help this guy and he dies on me, I cannot be qualified to serve in this ministry. And because the main mission of my life is the worship of God and the facilitating the worship of God with God's people, that takes a greater priority than helping this man. So sorry, brother, I gotta go, right? God is more important than you. So they leave him, right? Now, what's the problem with that thinking? The problem with that thinking is that's absolutely wrong. (laughs) Why is it wrong? Because these two men ended up majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Now you're thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 Pastor, did I just hear you right? Are you implying that the worship of God is not a greater priority, even a greater priority than helping a fellow person who is struggling with, with pain and suffering? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that God is more important than man, that we are nothing but dust and he is all glorious? Truly, God, the worship of God is so much more important than doing any sort of mercy ministry or social justice. Uh Uh-oh, PJ, you sound like one of those crazy social justice warriors. Is that who you are? Is that what NCF is going to be about? If you're thinking this way, clearly you're off in your thinking and you're not understanding properly of what I am saying. Yes, the Bible makes it clear the worship of God 
is important. In fact, it's the most important thing. Worshiping God, praising God, serving God, delighting in God, right? Glorifying God. That is the ultimate priority of the Christian. But the problem is, is when you confuse the ultimate priority of the Christian to the main mission of the Christian. Let me say that again. The problem is when Christians confuse the ultimate priority of the Christian to the main mission of the Christian. Brothers, sisters, hear me when I say this. The worship of God and the mission of God are not the same thing. Okay? The worship of God and the mission of God is not the main thing. Listen to how John Piper puts it. He says this, quote, Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. Mission is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. What is he saying? He's affirming worship is the most important thing. But he also says it is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to go out and make worshipers of God. God's mission is not to pursue people who are already worshipers. Rather, his mission is to pursue people who are not yet worshipers in the hope that they will be worshipers. This is why the priest and the Levite were wrong, because they mistakenly thought that God's mission was primarily focused on those who are already part of the inner circle, so to speak. People who are already part of the worshiping community. This is why they were so obsessed with their ceremonial holiness, because they fixated on just ministering to those already part of those who are already in. Right? And Jesus says that is wrong. And yet, sad to say, so many Christians are living out this error. So many Christians, specifically veteran Christians, people who've been Christians for a long time, will spend all of their time, all of their energy, and use all of their spiritual resources on only on the people of God, people who are part of their church or part of some church, right? And they will not use any time, any resources to those outside of the walls of the church, those who don't know God, or as Jesus would refer to them as our neighbors. Let me ask you a question, Christian. What are we going to be doing in heaven for all eternity. What are we going to be doing in heaven for all eternity? Revelation says we're going to be worshiping God, we're going to be fellowshipping with one another, and we're going to be serving each other, right? Now, follow-up question. Why would God keep us on this earth, right, to worship, fellowship, if we think that's the main thing, when we can do that so much better, more perfectly, perfectly in heaven? Why would God, when soon as he changes our heart, converts us with regeneration and saving faith, why doesn't he just say, all right, go straight to heaven so you can worship me perfectly, so you can fellowship with one another perfectly, so that you can serve one another perfectly? Why instead does he stay on earth? What, so that we could worship imperfectly, fellowship imperfectly, and serve imperfectly? Does that make sense to you? It doesn't, unless that's not our main mission, right? That the main mission instead is for us to gather together, to grow in spiritual maturity, so that what? We can go out and be a blessing to our neighbors. Don't you see? We gather together so that ultimately we can scatter out, right? Both as individuals and as little clusters that we call here oikos groups, so that we can be a blessing out into the world so that we can reach our neighbors. But sadly, again, too many churches do not think this way. 
They think that the mission is solely on Sunday worship and only Sunday worship without recognizing that it is only part of the equation. We gather here for Sunday to be equipped, to be empowered, to be encouraged so that we would be missionaries out into the world, that we would get out of this inner circle known as the worshiping gathering community so that we can go out and scatter abroad as salt and light to be a blessing. And so the question that we have to think about before we end the message is, how do we avoid this error? How do we make sure that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing the will of God when in fact, maybe we're not doing it at all? And this leads me to my final point, the unexpected neighbor. After Jesus shows us in his parable what a genuine child of God does not look like through the character of the priest and Levite and therefore by association the Jewish lawyer, he then introduces us to a character who he describes as a genuine heir of God, and yet a character that no one listening to the story would ever consider to be a true heir of God, and that's the character of the Samaritan. Let me briefly explain. During the time of Christ, Samaritans and Jews, they hated each other. They were cultural enemies, and I can't go into the specific details behind of it. Why? If you want to know why, go to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and read those books because it will give you everything that you need to know why the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. But for now, just know that these two groups hated each other with such animosity. Now, if you consider this background, it's quite shocking, therefore, why God would use a Samaritan to be the good guy in the story. Right? It would be so odd that... There we go. It would be so odd that someone who most people would consider a villain, who are hearing the story, to be the good guy. Because not only does that mean the Samaritan is the enemy of the priest and the Levite, but you know who else he's the enemy of? The guy dying. The guy on the road who was beaten by his own fellow Jews. Right? And yet that did not stop this Samaritan from stopping and inconveniencing himself and meeting the needs, the immediate physical needs of this man. Look at what it says, starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him... He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now notice the word Jesus uses to describe this man at the end of verse 33. What is this Samaritan filled with? Compassion, right? Compassion. That is such an important word because it characterizes what essentially a good neighbor is. And so we come to ask ourselves, well, then what is compassion? If compassion is what identifies a good neighbor, which identifies a Christian, what is compassion? Listen to how one theologian, Henry Nouwen, puts it. He writes, quote, the word compassion is derived from the Latin words pati and cum, which together mean to suffer with. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. That's compassion. That is what it means to be a Christian. And that's what this Samaritan was. Why? Because he understood the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God, who is really holy, not simply ceremonially holy, but he is truly holy, right? In his holiness did something that the priest and Levite would not do. What did 
God do? He came into the world as Jesus Christ, and by doing so, what did he do? He left behind the ultimate inner circle, made up of himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, leaving behind the ultimate worship service, where with all the angels, he, the Son, was worshiping the Father in the ultimate temple. He left that behind. Why? So he can go on a mission and rescue those who were essentially dead, dead because of sin, you and me and every human being that walks on this earth. That is what the gospel teaches us. In other words, Jesus went on a mission to be a good, compassionate neighbor, the best neighbor. But here's the thing. This mission of Christ would come at a great cost. You see, the priest and the Levite, they weren't wrong into thinking that if I handle this man and he dies on me, I'm going to get defiled, right? I could potentially could get defiled. But what was only potential for them was actual for Jesus. By Jesus coming into the world, he was no longer the Holy One. What does Paul say in Corinthians? He who knew no sin became what? Sin for us. He didn't become a sinner, but he took on the defilement of sin upon himself as our Savior substitute, meaning he suffered the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, and future, when he died on the cross as our Savior substitute. That is essentially what the gospel did. Why did Jesus do that? So that ultimately you would not be deprived of what he was deprived when he was dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from entering the temple. He was unable, he was defiled so that you would never cry out that cry of dereliction. That is what the gospel teaches us. You see, this is why when Jesus hears the word Christian, he thinks of someone of being a good neighbor because he's thinking of himself. He's thinking of the ultimate child of God, which is who he is, the true, genuine child of God. Jesus is the ultimate good neighbor. And so here's my question. Is that what you think when you think of the name that is attached to your personal name, Christian? When you think of what characterizes you, what makes you you as a follower of Jesus? Is it this? Is it this idea of being a good neighbor, someone who has compassion on the broken, the lonely, the weak, the forgotten? Is that central to what you perceive of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Or is it something else? Something that is penultimate that you've made ultimate? What do you feel the mission God has given to you as an individual Christian and collectively to us as a church? Is it just about our community, our ministries, our church people, or is it our people so that they can go out and be a blessing to those that they are connected to? I hope and pray that it is the latter and not the former, because if it is not, then our church is doomed. It's doomed of becoming a church of spiritual meatheads. What? What'd you call me? (laughs) Spiritual meathead. A few months ago, during the summertime, Sarah and I went on our first vacation for this whole year. We went back and visited her family in Chicago. And so we missed the Sunday here. And of course, this is an opportunity for me as a pastor who normally does not get a chance to sit where you guys are sitting to finally do that 
at another church service. And so I Googled, I Googled a church and I put in the parameters that would somehow match our church. I looked for a church about our size, predominantly Asian American with the same staff ratio that we have, right? Looking at the vision statement and all that stuff. And so we found this church out in Wheeling, uh, Chicago. It's the suburbs in the northern part of Chicago proper. And so we went to this church. It was a nice church, beautiful building. They were actually to pull off what we failed in pulling off. Uh, they were an EM that became independent, and they were able to stay in partnership with the KM, and they lived in harmony with each other. It was such a delightful thing to see, and yet such a sorrow for me to think of how much we couldn't achieve that back at KCQ. But regardless, we went into the worship service. We sat down, and for some reason... As much as the facilities were nice, the praise was good, the message was decent, you know, I didn't, and it wasn't because of the message, okay? It was, it was decent, right? But I just didn't like it. <laughs> it was like something feels off. I couldn't figure out what it was. It was this very vague, nebulous thing that just was very unsettling to me. And as we were leaving the parking lot after service ended, I asked Sarah, Sarah, did, did you feel something was off? And she's like, no, I think it was great. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, she's like, but then it just got her attention. She's like, well, what was it? Tell me, well, what is it? You know, because she doesn't like not seeing what I see, right? And um, although for some reason, I have no problem of not seeing what she can see for some reason. But anyway, but she was like, well, what was it? And I was like, I don't know. And that was a Sunday before we were leaving the next day to come back to New York. And so even as we were coming back, I was riding the plane, Mac, to land at JFK. I was like, God, what is this thing? And then it dawned on me, that church that we were worshiping at, was a spiritual meathead church. You know what a meathead is? You guys know that term? It's that person who goes to the gym, right? And he's the one that looks at you, he's like, you got your bird on, bro, right? You know that guy? He's like, all oh, lifting weights. He's all jacked, right? Probably taking some illegal substances as we speak, right? And he's just working out. And the only thing he cares about is what? Just getting big so that he can look at himself, check himself out in the mirror. That's all he cares about. And as soon as he comes across someone else who's bigger than him, he gets puts more pills, injects more, and starts lifting more weight so we can get bigger, right? A lot of churches are like that, right? They see other churches that are bigger than them, they feel threatened by it, and they're like, oh, we've got to have a bigger budget. We've got to have a bigger program. We've got to attract more people, bigger numbers, right? We've got to have a more beautiful building just so that we can look at ourselves metaphorically in this mirror of status and feel good about ourselves, right? That's a spiritual beathead church, right? I don't want to be that. I want us to be a spiritual athletic church. What's that? It's the same kind of person who will go into the gym to work out like the spiritual meathead, but they're not there to look at themselves in the mirror, but they're out to go out and to play a game so that others can watch and be inspired and overjoyed. That's the impact Christians are to make. We are to come in here. This is our gym. This is the place where we get built up spiritually, strengthened Not so that we can keep building something more and more on Sundays. Bigger programs, bigger buildings. You know, when are we going to buy our next building, PJ? Is the question I keep hearing sometimes. Like, already? We've only been here for nine months. But already, like, oh, I want want a bigger program. I want this. I want that. I'm just like, I'm waiting for that, you got your bro, you got your bird on, bro. Like, that same tone to come out, right? That's not what we're about. We want to be spiritually athletic Christians, 
where we go out, where we do grow, we do get bigger, not so that we can check ourselves out and say, oh, look how awesome we are. NCF, we're so much better than this church and that church and boom, 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 boom. We get so threatened when this church is doing better than us. It's like, no, we are going to be a spiritually athletic church where we don't care about how we look. We care about how we are serving and blessing those outside of the world who don't do not yet know Christ because that is the mission to go out and make worshipers of God who grow up in the gospel and go out with the gospel. NCF, is that your heart? I hope it is, because if it's not, one of us is going to have to leave, either you or me. And I hope and pray that it won't come out to that. We'll both stay together, and we'll both grow together, and we'll both go out together for the glory of God and for the blessing of this world. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the truth of what it means to be a genuine Christian. Father, as we struggle through this new identity that we have been given as an independent church, Lord, there are no doubt many questions and many thoughts about how we can raise our children in a way that will prepare them for this world, how we can grow ourselves as individuals and collectively as a family of God to be a blessing to those around us. And Lord, we don't want to miss out. We don't want to truly mess up either. Lord, we pray that the thing that characterizes NCFers and this church that bears that name, would that we would not be a church of spiritual meatheads, that we would be a church that is a source of blessing to the world. God, would you help us to live this mission out so that when the day comes, when the mission ends, we can finally come back and gather in full circle of the great family of God, where we will be in the ultimate temple, where we will be doing our ultimate purpose of worshiping you day and night for all eternity, forever and ever. But Lord, until then, give us the strength, give us the empowerment by your precious gospel to live out this temporary mission so that those who are seeking after you and even those who are not will be found by you and that you would be greatly delighted at all those whom you have summoned to be worshipers of God in spirit and truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.